So I was told by someone on the front row to open with a joke that would make you all feel comfortable, wake you up a little bit, and that is, you are, hold on, I'm trying to get this right, you look as country as a turnip green. Is that it? That's how country... That's an awful delivery. Yeah, I know, I know. I, I, part of it's because I'm not from the country. Country, country. Um, I got a pair of boots. Also, kind of funny story before I, I kind of walk into this. So as I was like, you know, getting here, I saw, I saw some girl's shirt and it had like a crisscross pattern and I thought it was the Confederate flag. And I was like, <laughs> I was like, that's not country. That's offensive. And you need to not uh, do that. Anyway, um, it wasn't, it was just a crisscross. I was, I wasn't waking up yet anyway. So, uh, Good morning, everybody. Go ahead and open up your Bibles. Turn to uh, Joshua. We're going to be looking at the book of Joshua this morning. If you're new to the Bible or Christianity or the church, it's the sixth book of the Bible. Um, And the book of Joshua is actually the start of a new beginning or new era in the Bible completely. Maybe you've heard of the word Pentateuch before. So if if not, that's okay. It's kind of a hairy, big theological word. Basically, it's just the name that Jews give to refer to the first five books of the Bible. That is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Pentateuch, penta meaning five. If you know some Latin, you know, think about like the Pentagon with the five sides or maybe uh, the acapella group called the Pentatonics, right? Why? Because they have five people in the group. Now you're like, oh, that's why. Yeah. Um, Or, and tuk also means in Latin meaning books or scrolls. So Pentateuch, five books, first five books of the Bible. Those are considered the books of law or the books written by Moses. And now you have Joshua coming right after that as the sixth book of the Bible. And it's not a book of the law. It's not written by Moses. It is a new era really entirely. This book marks the new beginning and a new development in Israel as a nation. And what we're going to see is they begin to step into the plans and the promise that God has through Israel and for Israel in that moment. So for those of you who might be new or missed Bible study class the last couple of weeks, and you're kind of like wondering what the context is exactly, just to give you a little brief catch up, Abraham makes, uh, sorry, God makes a promise with Abraham way back in Genesis and says that all the peoples of earth will be blessed through you. And then through him will come a big nation, Israel, but that nation of Israel will be in Egypt for around 400 years. God would deliver the people of Egypt out, or the people of Israel out of Egypt in that 400 year time. And then along the way, he would give them laws and commands and promises for how they ought to conduct themselves because they are a new nation after all. You need laws to kind of hold yourself together. And then after that, Israel kind of wandered for 40 years as God provided for them manna and quail. And now as they're wandering, they get to the end of the wilderness, the end of their wandering 40 years. And now they're about to make that next step into the promised land, the land of Canaan that God had promised to Abraham and the Israelites. So they're on the cusp, okay, of, of getting there. And now is the time for them to finally take that, that one final step of the journey into that new beginning, that new season that God has planned for them. So out of transition, out of a new era altogether, and finally into something new. And so the book of Joshua begins really with everything new, a new leader, new land, new people, a new era, the new beginning on the horizon altogether. Now, with any new beginning, I mean, you, you know this based on you know, where we're at in life in particular, there's a lot of excitement about what the future might hold. But, you know, there's also that uncertainty that's kind of tethering you back a little bit, right? You know, you, you like, you have that eager anticipation, but you also don't want to expect too much because if you expect too much, then you might be disappointed by how it actually, you know, comes together. So in order to save yourself from the heartache of being disappointed, you like set your expectations low. 
Um, that was kind of what uh, um, someone said to me, I won't say who, before I got up to teach. Like, my expectations are really low, so make sure that you, I was like, yeah, for sure. Um, <laughs> so it's kind of like one of those defense mechanisms. But, but, but being, in a, being in a ministry of young adults, this has got to resonate with a lot of us, just, you know, based on our demographic. The reality is that the majority of us are more unsettled in life right now than we are settled. And that's, that's okay. That's just part of where we're at, trying to navigate whether it's dating or finding a job or changing jobs or changing jobs again or moving cities or making new friends. There's just a lot of transition. What's normal to young adults is not being settled and being established. What's normal is not being established. What's normal is transience. That's just kind of the nature of it. You know, we don't have a house. Maybe, you know, we're we're probably not married. We're trying to figure out what our calling is, what our, our real job calling would be once we kind of find ourselves there. And so you might be going through a new beginning yourself, maybe, you know, maybe you're on the cusp of that right now where you're just waiting to hear back from that interview, or you're waiting to hear back with whether you get that, you know, new job or move into that new place. And so, or maybe you're the opposite. Maybe you had high hopes for 2020. You wanted new things to happen. And you're like, well, uh, I'm two months in already. It's March 1st. And I'm still not seeing that. I'm still not seeing the new that I wanted. You know, everything is not new, it's stale. Everything is not new or changing, it's boring, and I want something new to come out of it. You know, the reality is that you never really know. Things can change just like that, you know, tomorrow. You could meet that girl or a guy today, or you can get that job tomorrow, or you could move. You just never really know. So regardless of where you're at, you might be on the cusp, whether you think so or not, and really is, are we preparing ourselves for that when it does or if it does come. Okay. So I hope you found your Bibles, Joshua chapter one. We're going to go ahead and and dive into this. And we really have four points today that we're going to be looking at. So Joshua one, we're going to look through one through nine, and we're going to flip to chapter five. So kind of keep your your hand ready. Verse one, Joshua one, this is what it says. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses's assistant. Okay. Maybe you're thinking like, wait, son of Nun. I thought nuns couldn't have sons because you know, they're nuns. This is not nuns in the way that we think about it in the Catholic sense. This is Nun as in Joshua's dad named Nun. Kind of unfortunate Catholic church wouldn't come later, but you get where I'm coming just to clear up some confusion there in case you're, you know, new to this. All right. Verse two, God says this to Joshua, Moses, my servant is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all the people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Verse 3, every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. So God is referring here to the promised land, that new era that they're going to walk into, and that he has promised to Abraham and his descendants forever. And now God is essentially saying, all right, now's the time, time's up. No more, no more suffering based on where you were in Egypt. No more wandering based on where you were in the wilderness. It's time for something new. Now the question is, are you ready? And most of us were like, yes, I'm ready. But when the moment finally comes, we're like, oh, I don't know. Am I, am I ready? Sometimes you don't know until you get there. And so that is what we're going to be looking at today. The four points that I'm going to be kind of navigating through that we see in this passage. The first one is navigating transition. If you're taking notes, first one, navigating transition. There's two things here in navigating transition that I think we can find just in really these first three verses. Letter A under number one, navigating transition is this. Uh, If you are in a season of suffering or transition, the greatest encouragement is being assured that it is going to end. It's not going to be forever. If you're in a season of transition or suffering, the greatest encouragement, you know, is being assured, maybe not the greatest, but a great encouragement to you is being assured that it will end. It's not going to be forever. I don't know what that thing is for you, but chances are 
it is going to only be for a season, whether it's unemployment or singleness or the job that you're in or the person that you live with that you're ready to move out from. Um, I'm not speaking from personal experience. I love you, Kale. Um, but whatever it is, it's not probably not going to last forever. The chances are that it's just a season. Chances are high probability it's going to pass. You know, we might think the pain that I'm feeling right now in this breakup, it's going to last forever. Or this terrible job situation, it's going to last forever. Or this sickness that I've just been diagnosed with, it's going to last forever. Or singleness, is it just, just going to last forever? I don't know. And so sometimes we're tempted to think, is this right now what I'm dealing with going to affect me for the rest of my life? Or is life going to be second rate now because of what I've been through or what I'm currently going through? Is life going to be second rate? I thought it was supposed to be this. It's not. It's this. So can I trust it? Can I, just, can I live in happiness anymore? Can I live in expectation or hope? Now, I I get that fear. I've been there myself, but this is a dangerous perspective, mainly because it might sound like pity, okay? But it's it's at its core, the perspective is underwritten by pride. That's really the heart of it. It's pride. Why? Because you're telling God you can see the future more than he can, that your wisdom is more competent in your life than his is, and really that you have a legitimate reason to worry, right? You're like, my worry is founded upon something reasonable, aka my own understanding, And God's like, well, no, you don't know my understanding. You don't know my wisdom. You don't know the future like I do. So stop worrying. Okay, so, you know, the Israelites, when they're in Egypt, this is forever. When are we ever going to get out? When they're in the wilderness, this is forever. Joseph, when he's in in prison, right? This is what the rest of my life is going to look like. I don't have any assurance that I'm going to get out. Life will forever be second rate. But clearly we know from this side, right, that that wasn't true. Hardly anything in this life is forever. Hardly anything. Circumstances change. God is, God is at work and he is active. And God in this situation is saying to them, this is the end of a new era. Okay, I know it was hard and I know maybe there were good things about it. Maybe thinking about your own past, but I have good, beautiful new plans for you moving into this new beginning. The question is, are you ready? Are you ready? And now we have a choice. See, pride looks at our past and says, this will define my future. But faith looks at God and who he is to us and says, you define my future, not my past. And so most of us, we, we tend to define things based on our past instead of the God that we live and follow, uh, follow after. And so here's the truth. Even if that thing okay, does last, last, last the rest of your life, that doesn't mean it will be second rate. We tend to think that. It doesn't mean that it will be second rate. We have that, that, that lie that life and happiness is found in that thing. It's not true. And secondly is that it will not carry into eternity. Even if it does last the rest of your life, it's going to end when you move into eternity, the true promised land, right? So you, you can give that up. You can give that to God knowing that there is a new beginning for you regardless of what your past has been like. Buddhism doesn't have that. Hinduism does not have that either. In fact, you carry your problems over with you into the next life. That's just kind of how it is. Islam does not have that hope either. Only Christianity gives you the assurance that every tear will be wiped away and everything sad will become untrue, as J.R.R. Tolkien has once said. So you and I were made for that true promised land, what we were truly created for. There will be an end. The season you're going through is probably going to not last. Well, it's not going to last forever. And it's probably going to change. Second thing from these first three verses, just letter B under that with navigating, is that there is value. We see there is value in planting your roots somewhere. There's value in planting your roots. God is saying to Joshua and the Israelites, okay, This time for transition, it was a season, but it's over. The time of suffering, it's over. The the, the grief you've moved in with, it's time to end it. You know, it's time to move on and settle in, period. Okay, some of you might be moving through grief. I know that's tough. I've been there myself. And there's certainly time for that. But at some point, 
in faith, you have got to draw the line and say, I'm done. You've got to draw the line and say, this is not going to define me. I'm going to move forward in faith based on what God has for me because in faith, I trust that what God has for me right here is better than what he didn't have for me back there. You have to, you have to move forward in that assurance and then plant yourself in that. You got to plant yourself. This is going to, this is going to come out in two temptations about how to plant one. And you see this totally with young adults. First temptation is to stay rooted. Okay. To be on that cusp, to look into the future longingfully, like wanting it. But then to never unroot yourself and actually go and do it. You're like, I'm too comfortable right here. I don't want to do that. Or the second temptation, and maybe this is more relevant with like millennials now, I don't know, um, is, to, is to unroot yourself from everything and to just stay unrooted and to just kind of float through life. And for some of you, God might be calling you to a new season of life, you know, in a new city, a new relationship status. It might be to break up with that person, a new, uh, uh, or maybe for you guys is to have that DTR or girls too, you have that DTR or, or, or maybe that God's calling you to move into a new job, something, but you're afraid, you know, you don't see what the future holds. You don't really know what's out there and you want a certainty to get you there. And that's not really going to happen. So the temptation is just kind of stay where you are and just look, but never actually do anything about it. The application here is that you just need to unroot yourself, truly let go and move forward into what he's calling you to do, and then root yourself in that, in trust. And maybe you're like, well, what if it's the wrong decision? Well, if it is, he's going to work it out, however, but at least you're moving forward. Because indecision is still a decision, ultimately, right? It's a decision to do nothing. But some of you, I know you're in transition and you honestly just like it too much. You're like, I love being in transition. You think it gives you the license really to not commit to anything or to anyone because it gives you freedom or you think it maximizes your freedom, but really it doesn't really maximize your freedom. It just kind of prevents you from getting deep with anything in life. You just keep floating. Now, I'm not meaning to come down on any of you too hard. I know that especially us, we're in a phase of life where like, you know, we, we can't control that we went through a breakup. We can't control that we got laid off or the job market's not what, what, what we want in terms of where we're looking to get plugged into. Um, but this is my critique to young adults, really, including myself here, is that fullness of life and happiness, it's not found in being transient, okay? Unrooted, noncommittal. You're not going to find that. Instead, our calling is, is, is to not, not commit, but to commit and to say like, okay, I know that these are my options, but I'm going to commit to one. When I don't commit to anything, I don't have everything at my option or my, my disposal. It's actually the reverse. You don't have anything to your option or your, or your disposal. Okay. And so what you need to do is just move forward, plant and make a decision. I know that's hard for some of us. Let, let me leave you two, two examples. One, a dumb example that you can maybe resonate with, maybe too much. And then secondly, uh, a, a more applicable one here for like church context. One, I'll give you a, a, a dumb example of how this applies firsthand, if you will. Okay. So Let's just say, I don't know, I'm, you know, hosting an event with the Young Adults Ministry. And, you know, we have it planned out like, mm, let's see, like two months in advance. You know, cool. We, get, we have time to plan for it. And then, you know, I look on, it's like the day before the event, we have like four registrations. And I'm like, oh, no, this is, this is not going to be good. And then <clears throat> in the next five hours of the day of the event, you know, maybe there's 50 slots, 60 of you register. And you're like, oh, it, it filled up. There's... I, you know, I, and I wanted to bring three friends and I'm not able to. And I'm like, well, sorry, Charlie, I gave you two months to decide and you're waiting till the last moment to decide and now it's my fault? Come on, like, <laughs> dumb example, right? Dumb, dumb example. You're like, is he talking to me right now? Yes, I'm talking directly to you right now. Oh, dumb example, I know, but, but, okay. 
true example that kind of fits the same heartbeat of this, okay, hear me out. You here in the church, for example, you're like, well, uh, you know, church, I'm not really going to join because, eh, you know, I might be moving in several months or like it might be a year from now that I'm going to get a new, new job somewhere else. I'm not really going to like be connected to a community because, you know, I don't want to get too close to people because if I have to move, then like, you know, I have to, and it's just better that way. You know, it's not as mess or it's just not as hard. I, I had a friend who recently said this, uh, he's like, well, I'm from Houston. I'm only going to be here for a year. But I'm going to go to Florida for med school next year. It'd be pointless. It'd be a waste of time if I get plugged in somewhere because I'm just going to move anyways after a year's up. No, it'd be pointless and a waste of that year if you didn't get plugged in. If you didn't, you have an entire year. So make the best of it. Maybe you'll make friends in the future in that year that you have. Maybe you'll grow in your walk with God more than you would if you just stayed on the sofa by yourself. Maybe you'll meet a nice guy or a nice girl. Who knows? If you're going to be somewhere, then be all in while you're there. There's a balance. I get that. You shouldn't idolize being too established and you shouldn't idolize being too unrooted either. But what you should do is in the moment, in the present, be all there. Missionary Jim Elliott once said, where you are, be all there. Where you are, be all there. So whatever that season is, just try and in faith, be all there. You're only going to shortchange yourself if you're not. You're only shortchanging yourself if you're not. So that's what God wants for us. And when we're on the precipice of that new beginning, okay, he's calling us to move forward fully and then to trust him. To move forward fully and to trust him. So it has, life has its seasons, but now the question is, okay, well then where do I get my confidence really to enjoy the good seasons, but also to endure the hard seasons while I'm being fully there? Well, we're going to get to that. Let's keep reading in verse five, moving through chapter one still of Joshua. Just as I was with Moses, God is saying, to Joshua, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give to them. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, but you may have good success wherever you go. Verse 8 This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written. In it, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and be courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. So, number two, if you're taking notes, this is finding true confidence. Finding true confidence. And really, there's two things from this passage, letter A and letter B, I think we can kind of glean from this. Number A, or letter A, is, is that confidence comes from who's beside you, not what's inside you or what's around you. Confidence comes from who's beside you, not what's inside of you or what's around you. So in our culture, you know this, we are obsessed with finding confidence. We want to be as confident as we possibly can in life, right? We, we, we just go to Barnes and Noble or Amazon, and we're going to find a million, literally a million different books on how to become the more confident, more content, more powerful, more enabled person that you are supposed to be. 10 steps to be your best, something 10 steps to be, there are 10 steps to impress or 25 steps to be the most confident you. Dun, 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 dun. We want to find confidence. And so we try to locate that in a myriad of things, right? Like social media or friends or grades or, or romance or the job we hold or, or the confidence about, about how stable our circumstances may or may not be. And, you know, do I feel okay with that? Is it ever good enough or is it ever sufficient enough? You know, you even have new age religion, Right. 
which doesn't just tell you to look around you for confidence. It tells you to look inside of you for confidence. It says you should be confident not about the things that are going around. That's, that's the problem. The problem is that you're finding your confidence in other people and other things. The real confidence, the real person who won't let you down is you. I don't know about you, but the person who's let me down the most in my life is me <laughs> and probably is for you too. You know, you hear, you know, baby, you're a firework, you're special, you're a snowflake, you're a Skittle. You can do whatever you put your mind to. If you work hard enough, you'll make it, right? The world gives us two options for where to find confidence. Confidence is, is either found around you or inside of you. The Bible does not endorse either of those two strategies. Both of those strategies are dead ends that you will not find happiness or confidence in overall. The Bible says if you try to build your confidence on what's around you, those are foundations of sand. And really, the more you try to do that, the more you're just shoveling sand on a foundation that can't, it won't support it anyways. But the Bible says you're not going to find confidence inside of you either. The heart is deceitful among, among all things. Who can trust it? A verse in Jeremiah. It says that what you need to get through in life, what you need in to find confidence is not a short-sighted, pseudo-spiritual, navel-gazing perspective about what's in you but rather who you see beside you. You need a bigger gaze of the one who's walking beside you and preparing the way before you and being hemmed in behind you. The one who's all around you. You need to not follow the 10 steps to a better whatever. You need to know who's, who's walking beside you more than anything else. And so what God is saying here is he's saying, don't be afraid, be courageous. Why? Because good Christians don't be afraid? No, because he's beside you. That is your foundation for confidence. That is your foundation. In the first nine verses that, that we just read, it says, do not be afraid, or at least some kind of phraseology of that, five different times. You think Josh was afraid? Probably. Because he's, he's repeating this over and over and over again. The command, do not fear, this is interesting, you might know this already, or some version of it, do not fear, do not be afraid, it's actually in the Bible 366 different times. 366, kind of like one for every day of the year, including this year, where we have 366 days. So every morning you wake up, perhaps, I'm not saying this is a good hermeneutic, but perhaps every single day you have a new command, a new, a new uh, imperative for you to walk forward and not being afraid, knowing that he's already walking with you and that there's enough grace for the day that you're about to walk through. Okay, it's, it, it comes from who is beside you, not what's inside of you or around you. You're just not going to find confidence like that. And, and then letter B on where to find confidence is simply this. It's a short point. Just know your Bible. You got to know your Bible. Um, you know, this is why we do such Bible intensive stuff as a church, why we have Bible study here. And then you go to service again and then you have small group on the week. That's just too much. I know maybe, but, but, but if there's anything to really root yourselves in, it's this book, know the Bible and what it is for you. This is just a, a couple things about how the Bible even speaks about itself to us. Let me just give you some, uh, some references. It's spirit and life. John six sixty three or yeah, six sixty three. It's alive and active. Hebrews four twelve. It's perfect reviving the soul. It's sure making wise the simple. Psalm 19, it's powerful for today. Psalm 111, 109. And in a world of chaos and fake news and information, it's finally everlasting truth that we can really anchor ourselves in. John 17, 7, uh, 17. It's timely and timeless. It's coherent and reliable. It's incisive, yet it's also comforting to you. It's simple, yet profound. Like, what else do you need? It's old, yet it's relevant. It's humbling, yet it's empowering to you. It's sanctifying, yet it's also satisfying at the same time. It's going to make your heart be challenged, but it's also going to challenge the way that you think. Every single thing about it, it's, it's going to re rewire how you are making sense of life. And it's going to give you confidence to see more clearly the one who's standing beside you. If you have a wrong image of God, it's because you haven't been in your Bible. 
And if you don't have confidence in this, it's because you probably don't know what's open or maybe it's closed. We have to root ourselves in this book. It's not just a book. It is, our, it is everything to us. It gives us that confidence that we need. But let's keep moving forward. As, as God kind of begins to lead the Israelites to take you know, the land of Canaan or the promised land, that, that, that next new era, the new beginning, they run into the city of Jericho on the way there into the, Can- uh, into the land of Canaan. And Jericho, if you know the Bible stories, you grew up in church, it was highly regarded for its incredibly impenetrable walls surrounding the city. In fact, ancient scholars have said that uh, the walls of Jericho were so thick that two chariots could ride side by side across the top of it. Two chariots. So think about like uh, Memorial Drive right now, actually, in the rodeo where you have chariots or horse-drawn, whatever, going down Memorial Drive. Think that's the thickness of the wall of Jericho. All right, that's how thick it really was. And so you have this major obstacle seemingly standing in the way of God's promise and plan, that new beginning that he wants the people to walk into. These are massive walls, horrifying people. Ancient accounts even talk about the, the Canaanites or, or the, the giants of this land being probably more, more, more horrific than, than the people and then the Nazis in the Holocaust. They were skinning people alive and, and putting their, their skins on the walls, cutting their heads off and putting them on stakes for other people to see. They're bad dudes. And, and so earlier in the Bible, you see, you know, I think it was back in Exodus, where they went out to try to look at the land. And then, um, and they were like, we, we can't go. They're too big. This is a big obstacle. Are you serious, Lord? Like you, you promised us this, this is the new beginning <laughs> and you make it this hard for me to move forward. Why would you do that? If you're calling me to go forward into this new beginning, why would you put something like, all right, some speed bumps, I get it. Okay. That's good. But, but this now, I, I, you would think it'd be a little bit easier if you're like calling me to go forward in this, right? Like this is about as hard as it gets. All right, why, why would God do that? Why would he allow a certain obstacle in the way if that's his will? For example, you know, if, if we're supposed to get married, Lord, like why, why is our relationship so difficult? Or why are her parents so difficult? <laughs> or if I'm, if I'm supposed to, uh, you know, maybe for, for people who I, who I know from like, you know, older parts of the church who are married, they say, if we're supposed to adopt this baby, like you're calling us, Lord, why all these legal difficulties from other nations that won't let us adopt? If I'm supposed to move cities, why did you make that job fall through? If I'm supposed to plant here, then why did like my roommates go off and do their own thing and now I don't have any roommates? <laughs> you know, well, why is it like this? Now, there could be a lot of reasons for this, but I don't want to surmise and give you a particular reason. You know, the, the Bible's not an encyclopedia, but it does give us principles here. And this is the next point we'll see in the story. So in your notes, number three is exposing the real obstacle. Exposing the real obstacle. I don't mean to discourage you, but usually when you're walking in the will of God, usually there will be obstacles along the way. Obstacles that might even seem impossible to overcome. I I don't know. I'm not speaking. I know I'm speaking generically, you know, here, of course, but if there's no resistance on the path, it probably means you're on the Broadway instead of the narrow. If there are no, no obstacles at all, it probably means you're on the broad instead of the narrow. I'm trying to think of people in in, in the Bible who the Lord called to do something in that an act of obedience called to move forward. And I can't think of one that didn't face an incredible trial on the way there. I literally can't think of one. Abraham, for example, called out of his homeland and to have a nation, right? God's promise. And yet they're running into the obstacle of barrenness. You're like, okay, that's a pretty big obstacle. Or, or Noah called to build an ark, but ran into the obstacles of, of no one understanding him and everyone accusing him. 
or Moses called to Egypt to, to, to let my people go. And right when he gets to Pharaoh, finally, he's like, let me people. And he says, no. He's like, wait, I thought God, when you said for me to let, you know, he wouldn't say no, he should say yes. Right. So now I have the ruler, the most powerful ruler of the entire world saying, no, that's a pretty big obstacle. God, if you want me to do this, why are you making it this hard? Jeremiah called to preach a revival to the nation ran into the obstacle of literally everyone making fun of him and no one listening. He's called the weeping prophet. Nehemiah called to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild, ran into the obstacles of foreign policy and conflict of his own people. No one was even on board. He said, well, God, if you called me, then wouldn't you also call them to come with me? Well, yeah, but then why are they being so thick scold, right? Or, or, or Elijah called to, to, to lead a revival in Israel. And right after he defeats the prophets of Baal, where he's finally like, all right, it's here. And then they're like, no, nah, we want you dead. And he's like, but this wasn't how it was supposed to go. Like, I just did this, and the new season's about to, and then there's a big obstacle. John the Baptist preparing the way for Jesus ran into the obstacle of none other than the evil King Herod. And God thought that he was, or John thought that God was going to deliver him in a way that he thought would fit his narrative, and then God didn't deliver him. But it was God's will, nevertheless. And so you have this huge obstacle, or, or, or Jesus, for example, called to bring salvation to earth. And then he gets 12 idiot disciples who literally can't remember anything, constantly fight over the dumbest stuff, and, 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 and are, are, are rejecting him right up until the point of his death on the cross. Paul felt the strongest calling to preach to Rome, but for whatever reason that we're not even aware of, God did not let him go to Rome. Rome was the most powerful city in the known world at that time. And he's like, God, I'm trying to bring the gospel to the most powerful city in the world. And God's like, no, not you at least. And he's like, well, why? I feel the promise and I feel my calling, but I'm feeling a lot of obstacles in between that make it seem like it's being contradicted. But yet, nevertheless, on this side of history, we see that Paul wrote maybe the greatest, most powerful letter in all of human history, Romans. Right? So it, all that's to say, if the way is always easy, you're probably not on the right path. If the way is, if there is resistance, you might be on the right one so far as you're obeying the Lord. For example, you know, some of you in here, you're dating this guy, girl, relationship that was not healthy, you know, and finally you trusted God and you broke up. But what happened? You're like, well, if I break up, then God's going to honor me by like, you know, making sure it fits the narrative of what I think it should ought to be like and how it ends up. But actually, it feels like God left you out to dry. Your ex gets a happy life. And you're like, but God, I'm the one that honored you, right? Like, what, did you just let, like, are, are we on the same page here? Or, or, or you were in a job and they were asking you to do something that you knew was sinful and, and you didn't do it. You're like, God, I'm going to trust you. This might cost me. I'm going to trust you. And what happens? You did it. And instead of like getting the raise that you thought how God would honor you, you get fired. And then the person who's cheating gets promoted. And you're like, wait a second. All right. You told me to trust you, God. It's not supposed to go this way. Like, I thought that like you were going to honor me because I made the right decision for you. Okay. So you're looking at this and you're like, I, I you know, I, I listened to a catchy sermon that was like, you know, your setback is going to set you up for the, the next, the next thing. And like that thing broke apart so that you can finally have a breakthrough. And you're like, well, nothing's breaking through. Everything's breaking through. I'm not getting set up. I'm keep getting set back, back, and back further. I'm getting more obstacles, not less. So what am I supposed to do with this? And so what are you supposed to do? Or what is God trying to do in that situation? Perhaps, I'm surmising here. It might be, it might be that God in his grace and in his love for you, he's testing you to finally get to the bottom of your heart. 
to see what's really at the bottom, to see what you really trust in. What are you really trusting in? Are you trusting God for God or are you trusting God for something else? What's at the bottom? What, what do I mean? What, because if you do the right thing for God, okay, you know, only because you expect him to do what you think he ought to do for you, you're still in control of the situation, aren't you? You haven't let go. You're still in control. God may be putting something in your life so tough, more than you can handle, if you will, more complicated, so that you'll finally surrender. Finally surrender, pre-surrender the outcome to him. In other words, God's hoping you to see that the real obstacle in this journey is not the physical obstacle you see, is not that relationship or job or whatever. The real obstacle is a lack of trust. The real obstacle is a lack of trust. It's not the pain, the circumstance, the trial. It's a lack of trust. Think about it. What was the biggest obstacle when the Israelites were inheriting the promised land? Was it the giants? No, it was their heart of trust. What was the biggest obstacle for Lazarus lying in the, in the grave? It was a lack of trust. Not death. Not that Jesus ran out of time. He doesn't run out of time. What is the biggest obstacle for Peter to walk on the water? It was a, was it the stormy sea? No, it was a lack of trust. No circumstance stands in your way quite like a lack of trust does. No circumstance stands in your way quite like a lack of trust does for the new beginning that God wants to take you to. And so to go anywhere with God into that next step, to go anywhere, to have a new beginning, you've got to be pre-surrendered to whatever the future might entail. You've got to be pre-surrendered. Your yes on the table, your blank check and walk off. That is the only way he's going to take you into whatever's next. Otherwise, you're going to keep pulling baggage from the past forward. And he doesn't want that. And this is our final point for today, is, is if that's exposing the real problem, then we need a real solution. Number four, believing the real solution. Believing the real solution. You see this idea opening up for us right before they get to the grand story of Jericho and what's going to happen. So before Joshua knows exactly how God's going to go about for them, and before he knows exactly how this battle of Jericho is going to all kind of come to fruition and turn out, and before he, he knows exactly what's going to happen and what's going to become of him, God leads Joshua to a point of surrender first before he leads him into that new beginning that we're talking about. And God does the same thing oftentimes for us as well. So flip in your Bibles, I said this earlier, to Joshua 5, just a couple pages over. Joshua 5. And before we look at a verse, I want you to look at Joshua 5 structurally, just big view of it, looking at the subheadings and everything. What do you see? You see two things before the final one. It is the new generation circumcised, and then the first Passover in Canaan. Some of you are like, okay, circumcised. What are we? Yeah, we don't have time to get into that. Okay, if you've been in guys' small group, we've been talking a lot about that. Not, that sounds weird. It's a covenant thing. It's in the Bible. Google it. Ask us later about it. Uh, but ultimately, it was a symbol to express trust. It was a symbol to express trust in God. That's what it was. And for now, think of it like baptism, similar to baptism, okay? It's a symbol to communicate trust. And then you have the Passover. So they, you had circumcision, and then you had the Passover. Right after the Passover, same thing. It was a, a religious custom for them, a symbol to ex- communicate thanksgiving to God for bringing them so far and trust into what he's taking them into after that. So think like for us, the Lord's Supper or communion in a similar way. Now, in other words, before the Israelites were stepping into this new beginning, okay, before they had what, you know, experiencing what God had in store for them, they were expressing their symbols of trust and thankfulness and obedience to God. Okay, pause right there. We would all agree that's a good thing, right? Of course, that's a good thing. But I hope I'm not reading too much into this, but how many of us 
do the exact same thing before we try to move into that new beginning that God has in store for us. When we, especially when we find ourselves up against that opponent or trial or transition or tribulation, right? You're going through that hard time and you're like, oh, now I need to get myself right with God. You know, because if I get myself right with God, then he's going to help me out. You know, me and my girl, we're not doing so well. We need to go back to church because that's going to help things. My girlfriend and I are on rocky ground. We need to plug into a community group. You know, I'm facing a hard time at work. Ah, you know, I really need to start like praying and tithing more. Maybe that'll like help me get out. I'm really having a hard time with this breakup and like, you know, everything. So I need to like just be involved in church more. And then it'll be, or you see this with families all the time, families who never go to church. But then as soon as they have a kid, they're like, oh, uh, we need to go to church now because we have a kid and we want them to make, we want to make sure our kid is good and good moral standing citizen in our society. Bring him to church. Now coming to church is a great thing. Okay. Praying and tithing is a great thing, but if you are doing that only to get God on your side so that he can help you get what you want, you're not coming to him in surrender. You're not coming to him in the right way. That's not surrender. That's leverage or delusional leverage. You think you have leverage and you really don't anyways. He's, he's holy. So literally right before the Israelites do their religious rites, they have a good night. And Joshua, however, you see the, the, the narrative kind of pans to him. He's feeling a little nervous, nevertheless. He's like, I still don't know about this. I don't know what's going to go, go, go down here. So Joshua 5, 13, look at verse 13. When Joshua was by Jericho, okay, a little Hebrew transliteration for you. It means he literally was beside the wall when Joshua by wall, like he's right on the wall. In other words, he crept up to enemy territory in the darkness of the night, checking things out, making sure his battle plans are all, all good, crossing off his T's, dotting his I's, that kind of thing. While he's literally beside the wall, keep reading, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said, are you for us or for our enemies? He re- you probably realize, like, all right, he doesn't look like one of us or one of them. So is he for us or for them? And he said, verse 14, no, but I'm the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worship and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet for the place you are standing on is holy ground. And Joshua did so. Now there's an interesting scene here. Joshua is around 80 years old when this is going down, 80. He sees a great man with a drawn sword and Joshua went to him. Okay, that's like a total Chuck Norris move, okay? It doesn't matter how old he is, he's always looking for someone to like roundhouse kick. doesn't matter how, he's like, how old is he now, 85? And he's still doing what he's doing. Joshua has some kind of courage. Me, in my prime, if you will, as an 28-year-old male, I would have hightailed it out of that area and ran from enemy territory if I saw a great man with a sword coming at me. Joshua, the courageous man that he is, he kind of goes up to him, but the conversation takes an interesting turn he says, did you, did you catch it? Anything like peculiar or odd? You know, he says, are you for us or against us? And what does the man say? No. He's like, okay, um, that's not, I don't think you heard me right. That's not a yes or no question. I said, uh, he goes, no, I'm the commander of the army of the Lord. And now I have come. And oddly enough, Joshua falls down and worships and essentially says, oh, okay, I get it. You command me now. You command me. What's really going on here? First, it's important to see who this figure really is. The text says it's an angel of the Lord. However, whenever there are angelic encounters all through scripture, what you see is that people immediately fall down and worship and the angels are like, no, 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 no. You stand up. You stand up. You don't worship me. I'm not God. That's what's happening every single time. 
which is precisely what makes this situation interesting because what happens? Joshua falls down and worships, and this figure, he doesn't say no. He actually increases his level of worship and says, no, you take your sandals off. You're standing on holy ground, and he does worship. In other words, this was not an angel. This was God. In particular, this is Jesus. We know this is Jesus because Jesus is always the Godhead who comes to us to intercede for us and to fight for us. This is Jesus. This is what scholars call a Christophany, where Jesus comes in and appears in the Old Testament in many ways into the world as flesh, knowing that this is Jesus. We're now able to see why Jesus' strange response to Joshua makes sense, right? When Joshua says, well, whose side are you on, ours or theirs? And Jesus says, no, he's telling Joshua, that's not the question, Joshua. The question is, are you, is, are you on my side? It's not, you know, you're asking the wrong side, or the wrong question here. Are you on my side? Because I'm the general and this battle is mine. This is not yours. You're the general of Israel, but I'm the general. <laughs> you know, are you on my side or theirs? That's the question. Many of us, when we're faced in trial or this new beginning, we really, we start to try pleasing God, right? We, we try to, you know, go to, go to church more, read the Bible more, start tithing. It gives us the leverage. And, you know, might I add the audacity to say, are you on my side, God, before I do this big thing for you that you're calling me to do? Are you on my side? Because I got to make sure you're on my side before I can go forward. And, and, and you know, I, I love Texas and, and Texas has cultural Christianity all through it. And you hear this all the time that you have the audacity to invite God into my life. Whoa, 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 invite God into my life. You know, we want him to bless us, protect us, and we'll obey as long as it fits what we want him to do for us anyways. As if your good deeds get God in your debt, as if your good deeds are leveraged to get him to do what you want him to do. You know, you see those bumper stickers, Jesus is my co-pilot. Well, I hate to break it to you, Johnny, but like you're in the wrong seat if he's, in, if he's your co-pilot. Because that's not even your car. And, and, and so many of us, we have that idea that when we're, when we're walking forward with God, that he's got to make sure he's, he's with us because I know where I'm going. And, and in, this, in this passage, God is saying to Joshua, no, 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 no. You're either on my side or you're not with me at all. And, and what's true in this new beginning for you, the number one obstacle is whether or not you're going to surrender or whether or not you're going to in pride hold on to what you have. And so you've got to be pre-surrendered to whatever the future might be. Jesus does this to Joshua. He says, you surrender, not knowing what the future is going to be, but once you finally pre-surrender to it, not knowing what it's going to be, you can finally have confidence. You can finally let go. That's faith. That's trust. No strings attached. No more control. And so how do you get to that pre-surrender? How do you get to that, 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 that posture towards God? You know, what can lead me to trust God when I'm walking out into the dark, when I don't have any light at the end of the tunnel, when I don't have any assurance, any guarantee that it's going to work for me? I get it. You know, the only thing that's going to help you make that next step and that bump, to get over the bump, if you will, the only thing is by getting a view of Jesus. By getting a view of Jesus, here in this passage, you see that Jesus has already gone before Joshua. He's already gone before the Israelites. He's already ahead of the game. And this is the same warrior who's so committed to you that he'll actually one day stand in front of your greatest enemy, which is not the walls of Jericho or the walls of singleness or the walls of your job, but really your greatest enemy and unknown, which is sin and death and hell and defeat it by letting it defeat him so that it wouldn't defeat you. So that one day you could finally enter the true promised land and you could experience it here in life as well. You know what's, you know what's interesting here is that 
the name for Joshua in Hebrew, when transliterated into Greek, is actually Jesus. Because Jesus is the greater Joshua. He's the true Joshua that we all long for, that we all need as our true leader, as our true warrior, as our true general. And he's going to fight any of the battles, any of the unknowns, any of the new beginnings that we have for us leading into uh, wherever it is that he's, he's drawing us. And see, if Jesus is really like that, if that is really what God is like to you in Jesus, literally the Lord of the universe, commander of the armies of heaven, holds the universe at the word of his power, do you really want him to be your co-pilot anyways? Like, don't shortchange yourself. Like, you would want him to be who he is for you. So then finally let go, only seeing a God like that and trusting that he's for you, only that, only that is what can finally make your weary heart confident and finally give you real, real hope as you walk forward, even if you don't even know what it's, what it's like, even if it's completely dark. That's what the book of Joshua is all about. It ends with a challenge to believe, to truly step in and to believe and to trust and to plant yourself into that. And I want to wrap this up with a quick, I know that clock is fast, with a, with, with a quick kind of um, spiel on Proverbs 3.5. Proverbs 3.5, most of you, if you grew up in church, you know it. it's a famous verse about, you know, trusting in the Lord and walking forward. You know, this is what it says. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding and all your ways. Acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. All right. What I'd heard that verse my whole life. What finally hit me was the verb tense, the verb tense. He will make your path straight as you walk forward. He will make your path straight as you walk forward. It does not say he will make them straight when you show yourself worthy. Or he will make them straight when you finally agree to walk. Or he will make them straight and then you walk. It says he'll make them straight as you walk. As you walk forward, he will make your path straight. That's faith, is walking forward when you don't have a guarantee. When you have a guarantee, when you see the whole picture, that's not faith, that's sight. And so what I loved, uh, one pastor showed me this when I was back in college. He, he, goes, he goes, take in your Bible, you can do this if you want to right now. Go to Proverbs 3, 5 and, and read it. And he goes, in that, you're going to see two main things. You're going to see our responsibility, and you're going to see God's responsibility. Our responsibility, trust in the Lord with all your heart, right? That applies to me. Lean not on your understanding, that applies to me. In all your ways, acknowledge him. That applies to me, my responsibility. What's God's responsibility? Okay, just, I guess, the end of the verse. He will make, your straight, or he will make straight your paths. That's a promise. And the pastor said, okay, what I want you to do, if you have a pen, is I want you to draw a line, a physical line in between where your responsibility ends and where God's responsibility picks up. I want you to draw that line in there. And I don't want you to go over. Because what happens is that you want to go into God's side. He goes, to be you know, millennial and cool, stay in your own lane. Stay on this side of the wall. Let God take care of the rest. Outcome is not your responsibility. It's God's responsibility. Your outcome is just trust and obedience. Trust and obedience, that's all. So when we look at who Jesus is for us in the, jo- in the book of Joshua, we know we can have faith to walk forward into those new, into those new beginnings. I pray that wherever you are on that journey, that you, you would go ahead and do that and walk forward in faith. All right, well, I'm gonna pray and uh, they'll come on in. Lord, um, thank you so much for the opportunity that we have today to look into your word. I thank you for who you are to us and for us in Jesus and that wherever we are, whatever new beginning or new seasons you have up in store, I pray that uh, we would surrender that we trust you and we know that you love us. We pray this all in your name, Jesus. Amen.